Our scripture reading this morning is found in the book of 1 Peter. We'll be continuing chapter 2, looking at verses 18 to 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 18. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so so that we may die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed." For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Good morning, Snowden Baptist Church. Good morning. Uh, This morning and also on Friday for Remembrance Day, I will be remembering Harold Evans Staples. My grandfather on my mom's side, who fought in the First World War, uh, fought actually at the Second Battle of Ypres in France, died in 1972 when I was two. The only faint, faint memory that I have that has been kind of uh, content has been given to the memory through my mother is that I would sit on his knee as an infant and comb his hair with his comb. (laughs) So... uh, Sadly, he died when I was two, but I will be remembering him and, uh, again, encourage you to go to a cenotaph celebration if there is one in your neighborhood and if you have time to do that. As we open the Word of God once more, uh, let's approach the Word prayerfully. Would you bow your head with me and let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are a people who believe and know that your Word is inspired by the Holy Spirit that it is without error, that it is authoritative over us. This morning, Lord, I want to come as a servant of your word, standing behind your word. Uh, I pray that I would decrease as you would increase through it, that you, Holy Spirit, would be our teacher. And, Father, that we would have ears to hear and be attentive to the things in your word, And submit to your word, knowing that it is authoritative over us. I pray in Jesus' mighty name. Thank you for Jesus. Amen. You know, one of the disciplines of preaching through a whole book of the Bible is that it forces the preacher uh, to tackle passages and texts that otherwise he might try to avoid. Uh, See, it's easy as a preacher to just sort of stick to subjects and stick to doctrines that I am comfortable with, uh, that I like to preach on. But preaching through a whole book like we've been doing forces me to deal with the whole counsel 
of God instead of just my pet favorite areas. And sometimes that's going to mean that we land on hard passages of Scripture. This morning we are landing on a hard passage of 1 Peter. There are some difficulties about this passage, to be sure, but I hope that with the help of the Holy Spirit, that together we'll come out unscathed after looking at this together. I'm starting to think that if my tendency is to want to avoid uh, preaching a certain passage of the Bible, then maybe what that means, in fact, is that the Spirit is saying something very interesting in that passage that maybe the church needs to hear. Well, let's dive in together here. Now, we notice that the very first word of our passage is a difficult word, is it not? Slaves is the first word of our passage. Peter will now address slaves who were part of the church in Asia Minor. Now, obviously... The English word slaves is freighted in our contemporary age with negative associations that are 100% justified. When we read that word slaves in 1 Peter 2.18, most of us will think, almost automatically we will think, of 19th century American slavery and the wicked, horrific degradations that were practiced and perpetrated. Now, this word slaves has for us negative connotations that are warranted that come from our knowledge of the evil practice of slavery in the 19th century Western world. Now, friends, as hard as it may be for us to do, When we read the word slaves in 1 Peter 2.18 in the word of God, we need to strive to focus as best we can on Peter's first century context. For Peter and for the world he lived in, the word slaves still had negative connotations to be sure But slavery in the first century Near Eastern world was certainly not the same as slavery in the 19th century American world. What are some of the major differences between the slavery most of us think of and the slavery of Peter's day? Well, first of all, in Peter's day, we need to understand this, slavery in Peter's world was not a race-based thing. Racial factors did not play a role in the slavery that Peter mentions in this part of his letter. How did one become a slave in Peter's day? Well, oftentimes, when you were captured as a prisoner of war, you became a slave in your captor's nation. Or, in other cases, people, get this, voluntarily became slaves in Peter's day. Say if you were facing economic hardship and needed to pay off debt, you could voluntarily become a slave. You could also be born into the household of slaves and become a slave that way. 
So again, racial factors, we need to understand, did not play a role in the slavery of Peter's day. Second, another difference between 19th century slavery and the first century slavery of Peter's day was this, that whereas slave owners in 1800s America discouraged slaves from becoming educated, slaves in Peter's day were not discouraged from earning an education. In fact, many slaves in Peter's world were better educated than their owners. Many slaves in Peter's day would be doctors, nurses, musicians, skilled artisans, and the like. A third difference. Slaves in Peter's day could own property. And slaves in Peter's day could even own slaves themselves. It's a major difference. Still another difference between slaves in Peter's day and slaves in the West of the 19th century is that you, if you were a slave in Peter's time, you could expect to be freed. Your situation as a slave was not permanent. Now, were slaves in Peter's day sometimes mistreated? Yes, of course they were. Were slaves high on the social ladder in Peter's day? No. In fact, slaves were the lowest on the social scale of the time of Peter. So the word slaves, even for Peter's era, did have negative connotations about it for sure. But another thing for us to understand as we read 1 Peter 2.18 is that slavery in the time of Peter was such a pervasive and entrenched institution in Roman society that Peter probably could not have imagined a world without it. By some estimates, as much as one-third of the population of the cities was enslaved. Slavery in the Roman world that Peter is addressing in this part of the word of God, was one of the main drivers in the economic system. Peter probably could not have imagined a world without slavery in the sense that we have described it. What we note in our passage, and this is very important, what we note is that Peter does not say anything that would promote the institution of slavery. In other words, we do not find Peter blessing slavery here or endorsing the practice of slavery, but admittedly, neither do we find Peter criticizing the slavery of his day here. Again, we need to see this. This is so important. Peter does not promote slavery here, but neither does he criticize it. Rather, What Peter does is he simply assumes the reality of slavery in his culture and he focuses on the conduct. This is where it starts to hit home for us. The conduct of slaves who are believers. So Peter's laser beam concern here in this passage is with the conduct of of believing slaves who live, in some cases, under corrupt and crooked masters. 
Let's look then at our text after all of that as an intro. And let's try to see how this passage may indeed speak to us who live in 2016. In verse 18, Peter says, Oiketes, I've got to get that right. So that's the Greek word, which means household slaves. The word that Peter uses here in 1 Peter 2.18 refers to domestic slaves who worked in houses and who worked in estates. Slaves, he says, listen to what he says, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Now again, friends, the sad, tragic, horrible thing is that this very text was misused and abused by slave owners in the 19th century American context. Slave owners who were dreadful interpreters of the Bible. And they used this in order to justify their detestable practices. That is the sad reality. They just simply ignored the historical context, and they ignored the proper rules for biblical biblical interpretation, and they ignored God, And they enlisted this text to support their evil practices. That is blasphemy. Leaving that aside, what I want us to notice in verse 18 is how this is an absolutely, listen, countercultural, subversive, upside down word from God to us. In our situation today, focus for a moment with me on the word harsh that appears at the end of the verse in the NIV. Peter talks about some slave masters who are harsh. In fact, the Greek word that the NIV translates here as harsh carries in it a definite quality of moral perversity. In other words, the term is better translated as something like perverse or crooked or even morally bankrupt. There were slave owners in Peter's context who were morally perverse, who perhaps were withholding pay from their slaves or setting up unreasonable work expectations for their slaves. Employees say amen. I have it good here. (laughs) Uh, Or perhaps not caring about the working conditions of their slaves. These slave owners were nasty, unreasonable, unjust, and unscrupulous. Peter tells the slaves under such crooked masters to do what now? To submit to the crooked masters with all respect. Now, friends, if this isn't a difficult word in the Bible, I don't know what is. 
Now, some of you are employees right now, and you work under a boss man or a boss woman who is difficult, who is unreasonable, maybe even dishonest, unjust. The last thing in the world that you want to do is to submit to such a person with all respect. No, instead of that, maybe you want to assert your rights to defend yourself, to undermine the authority of the boss man or the boss woman, to rebel against the authority of the wicked boss who is over you. And besides, who wants to live under an authority figure anyway in our day? Am I speaking your language? Well, 1 Peter 2.18 comes to us from outside our world. And it is saying something very interesting to you and to me. What it's saying is, listen carefully, what it's saying is the character of the boss is not your concern, Christian. Your concern, rather, must be with your own conduct while you're around such a difficult boss. Submit, that is, arrange yourself under the boss or employer with all respect. The boss is a jerk or a jerkess. <laughs> I know, says God, but your kindness, your Work ethic, your fairness, your honesty, your obligation to love your enemies doesn't change. Now, if the boss man is trying to coerce you to sin against God, well, that's another story. There are limits, we have to say, to your submission in that sort of a case. If your employer tries to force you to sin against God... Then the Acts 5.29 principle of we must obey God rather than men does apply. But in general terms, and for most cases, for most cases, the word here to us in this part of the word is submit with all respect to the boss man. I knew it was going to be quiet in here this morning. (laughs) Now, what does this look like? Tom Schreiner puts this really well, I think, when he says this. He gives this little illustration. He says, quote, A secretary cannot refuse to type a letter for a manager simply because the manager is an evil person. Refusal to type the letter would be defensible only if the contents of the letter are evil. Christians, we are called to submit, this is a hard word, we're called to submit even to those authorities over us who are morally bankrupt. For the vast majority of the time, the only uh, exceptions come when those wicked authorities are asking us to sin against God. That's verse 18. (laughs) Verse 19. For it is commendable if a person bears up or 
endures under the pain of unjust suffering because the person is conscious of God. Now, notice again, friends, the countercultural, <laughs> subversive, upside downness of the phrase in this verse. Set your eyes on it with me. The phrase is, bears up or endures under the pain of what kind of suffering? Unjust suffering. When people in this world suffer unjustly, what is the usual response? Normally, people react to unjust suffering by hitting back, yes? By seeking revenge. It seems to come naturally for us. By trying to ensure that justice is done to the one who caused the unjust suffering. But Peter doesn't say here, it is commendable if a person takes revenge under the pain of unjust suffering. He says, rather, it is commendable if a person bears up, endures, and probably in the context, endures without retaliation under the pain of unjust suffering. How many of you know that the word of God is saying something interesting to us here? It's saying something that undermines, listen, that undermines and flips upside down the kingdom of self. Self would want to respond in kind to unjust suffering. I know that's right. But God asks us, he's asking us here to reconsider that very common accepted knee-jerk approach. It is commendable, or with the original Greek in view, it is grace. It's literally what it says. It is grace if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering. Now listen, because that person is conscious of God. Notice that last part. Because he or she is conscious of God. We can only endure the pain of unjust suffering by being conscious of God. That is, if you are a person who has been wronged, I won't ask you to say amen, but if you are a person who has been suffering the pain of an injustice done to you, what's the call here? The call here is for you to throw yourself and your entire focus in a Godward direction. Consider and know, wronged person, his presence with you, even as you smart from being wronged. He's with you. Know his care for you as you feel that pain of injustice. Remember his promise that one day... One sweet day that's coming, all wrongs are going to be righted by his justice. These things you must bask in and you must bathe in, otherwise despair and resentment and bitterness and self-pity are going to saturate your life. It is commendable. If a person bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because the person is conscious of God.
God. Verse 20, Peter now presents two case scenarios. Watch this with, with me. He says in verse 20, But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? That's case scenario number one. A person does wrong. A person is guilty of doing something untoward. And that person receives punishment for it. Peter says, well, if you did something wrong, you can't complain if you're punished for it. And God is not particularly impressed if a wrongdoer endures punishment for his wrongdoing. But, case scenario number two, if you suffer for doing good, notice, suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable. This is grace before God. Again, folks, we need to notice here, I hope you're staying with me, tracking with me, we need to note the countercultural, subversive, upside down thing that Peter says here, again, suffer for doing what? Good. Suffer for doing good. Seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Kind of like attentive husband or jazz violin. Shouldn't say that too loud. Countercultural here. Peter says, suffer for doing good and endure it. It's not suffer for doing good and seek revenge. It's suffer for doing good and endure it. The Bible asks us to reconsider the things that every reasonable person takes for granted. The Bible comes along and it flips upside down our values and our priorities and our settled arrangements. And it calls us to a radical transformation. Nothing short of radical. And here the call is... Endure, without retaliation, when you suffer for doing good. Well, in verses 21 through 25 now, Peter is going to bring in the one who is the key that helps us understand and uh, and sort of digest this entire passage. Who is the one he's going to bring in? Jesus Christ. Watch how this goes here. Verse 21, he says something completely radical. Listen to this. He says... To this you were called. Wow. (laughs) What, Peter? To this you were called. To what were we called, Peter? And the consensus amongst New Testament commentators is that the phrase, to this you were called, can only be pointing backwards to what Peter has just talked about. Namely, As Christians, we are, listen, called by God to suffer for doing good. And we are called to endure that suffering. To this, you are called. Did you know what you were getting yourself into when you trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? You know, there is a false, unbiblical, unchristian idea floating around in some circles that the suffering of the Christian must mean 
if you suffer, that God is displeased, that God is absent, that a person's faith is faulty. That sort of false idea, I'm here to tell you this morning, cannot be sustained with the New Testament in view. Peter says here, Christian, you're called by God to suffer unjustly and to endure that kind of suffering. God is with you and God is for you when you suffer unjustly and endure it. No tomatoes yet. I think we're doing okay. (laughs) I'm just trying to hide behind the word. (laughs) Peter says, to this you were called because... Christ, there he is, because Christ suffered for you. Now, friends, I want to ask you a question. Who is the one who suffered the highest, most palpably and patent, unjust form of suffering ever? Thank you. Jesus Christ did. Peter says here, Christ suffered for you. Leaving you, what? Leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, the word translated example is worth our close consideration just for a moment here. The Greek word refers to a pattern that children would use at school as they traced over the letters of the alphabet in order to learn how to write the letters. So you take your sheet and you trace A, B, C really, really closely and carefully and neatly as you're learning how to write. Peter says that Jesus is the one that believers trace over. Amen? Jesus is the one that believers follow, that believers copy, that believers pattern themselves after. Jesus, as we just said, is the king. He's the king of suffering unjustly. He never sinned against God. He never sinned against any other person. And they scourged him and nailed him to a cross. You want to talk about unjust suffering, you look to Jesus. And Peter says in verse 21, you trace his pattern. Amen? You follow in his steps. I'm from Alberta. In Alberta, in winters past, I would find myself ice fishing with friends on a frozen lake up north. Sometimes the snow on the lake would be about two feet deep, and if you had to walk any distance, you wanted to be a follower, not the leader. See, because the leader, you know where I'm going with this, the leader was the one who had to blaze the trail and step first into the two-foot snowpack. So you wanted to follow that poor guy so that you could kind of land in his or her footsteps uh, that were already made in front of you. Well, Jesus has blazed the trail for us in the area of unjust suffering. We follow him, his footsteps, his example. We have a leader. Where did he step? What footsteps are we following? We have a leader who stepped toward the cross. 
No amens. He stepped toward the cross and then to the tomb and then finally to glory at the right hand of the Father. We follow his steps, which are surely going to lead us to a cross. But then, hallelujah, we are promised that the path will lead us home to glory. Now watch Jesus, our pattern and leader, in verse 22. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to see our king in these verses. Peter says, Jesus committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Now this is remarkable, friends. Remember, first of all, that Peter had been around Jesus personally For a long time, personally and up close with Jesus Christ for about three years. In all the time that Peter was with Jesus, what had Peter seen? Peter had seen a man who had been literally perfect, imagine it, in all of his saying and in all of his doing. Never once did Jesus lose his temper selfishly. Never once did Jesus make mistakes in his decisions. Never once had Peter seen Jesus engage in sketchy humor or act out of self-interest, sinful self-interest. Peter had seen for himself what he talks about here in verse 22. Jesus, I saw him, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And of course, friends, here Peter is referencing Isaiah 53. Might be good if we have our Bible to just thumb into Isaiah 53 because he's going to be all over Isaiah 53 now and what follows. Peter's referencing Isaiah 53 with the phrase, no deceit was found in his mouth, which comes straight from Isaiah 53, 9. Peter is going to go to town in these verses now with quotes and allusions aplenty to Isaiah 53. Why is this significant? Well, for one thing, Isaiah 53 is part of the great servant song of Isaiah. Peter started off today in this passage talking about what? Servants or slaves and their conduct. Jesus is the servant. Isaiah's servant. The slave of God. The ultimate example of a slave's godly conduct is to be found in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's go to verse 23. When they hurled their insults at Jesus, and they did, prophesy, they mocked, as they beat Jesus and struck him. In Mark 14, 65. Hail, King of the Jews! They cried as they mockingly saluted him and spit at him and struck him in Mark 15, 18. When they hurled their insults at him, when they subjected sinless Jesus, righteous Jesus, to the most blatant form of unjust suffering ever perpetrated, what was his response? Peter says, he did not retaliate. (laughs) Wow. But he didn't. 
He did not retaliate. No, friends, this is the one who thundered to us and still does today that we must bless those who curse us. This is the one who remained silent under the pressure of being persecuted to death. Our Jesus, our trailblazer and pattern, did not retaliate, says Peter, when he suffered. He made no threats. Instead, says Peter, what did Jesus do? He entrusted. Now, what's very interesting in the original Greek text is that it does not say, in the original text, it does not say he entrusted himself. The NIV supplies the word himself here in order to make it run smoother in English. But in the original Greek text, what we have is simply he entrusted to him who judges justly. Entrusted what? Well, he entrusted himself for sure, but probably because of the way the Greek is here, purposefully, Peter does not want us to limit, you see, he doesn't want us to limit the entrusting of Jesus to just himself. It's not outside the realm of, the pos- of possibility that Peter wants us to understand that Jesus, in- he did entrust himself and his whole situation, yes, but he also entrusted, friends, even the destiny of his enemies to God who judges justly. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Jesus, friends, is our pattern. He's the one in whose steps we follow. How do we handle a situation in which we are on the receiving end of injustice? We trace the pattern of Jesus closely and carefully. That is, we entrust, we hand over, we commit not only ourselves and our whole situation, but also the fate of our enemies. We hand it over to God who judges justly. And we keep on entrusting like this, daily, hourly, consistently, and persistently. We don't retaliate because we know that God is on his throne. Amen? That he will vindicate vindicate his people, if not now, then on the last day. Verse 24. Blessed be God... Blessed be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice how this verse begins. It begins, believer, by stating the fact, by stating the truth, that Jesus, the servant of God, listen, substituted himself in your place, believer. Jesus took the blame, took the punishment for your sins. He died the death that you deserve because of your sin against God. As Peter puts it, he himself bore our sins. Whose sins? Our sins in his body on the tree. Blessed be God. Sinless Jesus took the weight, took the consequences of our sins on himself 
and atoned for our sin by his own death on the cross, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place, condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And Peter says, notice, that Jesus bore our sin on the tree. In Roman culture, when you were crucified on a tree, it meant that you were either a slave or a person without Roman citizenship. Jesus, slave of God, who identifies with us other slaves, died this lowly death of a slave on the tree. And he died, says Peter, listen, he died so that, purpose clause, he died for a purpose, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Jesus died to set us free from sin. He died to set us on the path of righteousness. And we just note here as we look at the text the extravagant length that God has gone to mortify sin in us, to kill sin in us. We've talked about that in previous weeks. To put us on the path of righteousness for his name's sake. God's son dies for that purpose. And the last phrase in 2.24 is the famous quote from Isaiah 53.5. By his wounds you have been healed, which in the context of our passage is clearly referring to healing from the curse of sin. The wounds of Jesus, his beaten and crucified body, heals us from our terminal disease, which is the condition called sin that each and every one of us is born into. And finally, verse 25, Peter now quotes Isaiah 53, 6. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And the word returned, in other places of the New Testament, this word is best translated converted. The idea is that we believers were like sheep who were wandering away, who were going off in one direction, heading toward destruction. But now a 180 degree turn has been effected. We have turned 180 degrees and we've returned to the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Well, having walked through this chunk of our letter, I hope that we have seen this morning, hope you've been praying for me, uh, just how upside down and how countercultural how subversive are the commands and the instructions that are in this passage? To borrow the words of Eugene Peterson, what Scripture likes to do, friends, is it likes to undermine the kingdom of self and establish the kingdom of God. As God speaks to us through his word, the assumptions that govern our lives, and we all have them, are often shattered. A new way of seeing, a new way of doing, breaks into our world. And we are sometimes left stunned, aren't we, by the way God wants to invade our turf and reshape us into his new creation people. So, submit with all respect to that wicked employer? What? 
Endure the pain of suffering for doing good? Don't fight back? Really? Follow in the steps of the one who walked straight to the cross? Really? Yes. Yes. For our good and for his glory. Let's pray the Spirit's able assistance in our lives as we attempt to be doers of this word this week. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for giving us interesting commands and injunctions that none of us would have written had we written the Bible. We know, therefore, that they have come from you, that they are here to flip us upside down so that we would be put right side up to flourish in your world that you have created and to glorify you. I pray, Lord, for the Holy Spirit's enablement and help for each and every person that is gathered here. Some, perhaps, have really been spoken to by your Spirit this morning about their relationship with their employer. Perhaps that's the case, and I pray the Holy Spirit's strength, power, ability to not speak if necessary, to speak in other cases if if that's what you desire. Walk with us closely this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The benediction comes today from the tail end of 1 Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, make you holy, and make your whole spirit and soul and body to be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen.